0: We're in the midst of a series together called Victory, the Gospel Foretold and Fulfilled. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to me, if you would, to Luke 19. Last week, Pastor Phil did a great job. We are on a journey with Jesus up to Jerusalem, where all the things he promised are going to be fulfilled. On the way up, he stops at Jericho, if you remember. He heals a blind beggar there and then has dinner at Zacchaeus' house, a notorious tax collector. Both of them come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. They believe the gospel. Now still at Zacchaeus' house, Jesus is going to teach a parable because the people there were beginning to think that the whole kingdom of God was going to be consummated when Jesus got to Jerusalem. He was going to overthrow Rome and be their king. The kingdom of God was very present. The 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 kingdom is where the king is, but there is a future fulfillment. That Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem, die, be buried, rise again, and ascend to the Father. And in the meantime, there was kingdom work to be done. Kingdom work for you and me. We are to be living in the light of his kingdom and his glorious return. And how we live affects our eternity. So Jesus told this parable to teach those things. Luke 19, beginning of verse 11, here's how Luke wrote it. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until they come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very little matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came. And said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Wow. Lord, these kingdom principles are powerful, encouraging, challenging, and serious. We are living in that day which you described. The day between your glorious ascension and your glorious return. And you have given us kingdom business. You have trusted each of us with the minas you want us to have. And now, what we do with those is what you're coming back to see. So, Lord, thank you for this parable, this kingdom parable. And help us to understand more of the victory of the gospel and the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A few years ago, we did a campaign here at the church called God's Eternal Kingdom, living to advance the reign of Christ. And in the workbook we did for that small group series, I started it like this, kings and kingdoms. Most of us are not really familiar with kingdom life. Most often we think of the ancient kings and queens of England or France or the fantasy worlds of Walt Disney. But when the crowds asked Jesus when the kingdom would come, He said the kingdom was already among them or within them. In fact, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and he lives in you, then you are already part of the eternal kingdom of God. But someday there's also going to be a future fulfillment. The king is going to return in all of his glory. He's going to vanquish his enemies and he's going to establish his reign over all. Jesus is the king. And kingdom life is already upon us. Jesus taught that we have to learn kingdom ways and standards that are very different from earthly kingdoms. The kingdom reign of Christ begins wherever the king comes to live and advances as each person gives themselves to the king's service and to seek and live kingdom life. And when our earthly life is over, we will, having lived for his kingdom here, find a rich welcome into his eternal kingdom there. But in the meantime, he's given us an assignment, a privilege. He's given us the king and the kingdom to serve as we wait for his glorious return. This is what the parable of the ten minas is all about. How are we going to live while we wait for the king's glorious return? Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem to fulfill all that's written about him. You remember a couple of weeks ago in Luke 18, Luke wrote in verse 31, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he'll rise again. We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything written about me will be fulfilled. On his way to Jerusalem, he goes by Jericho, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And as Pastor Phil reminded us last week, he heals a blind beggar, and the crowds begin to praise Jesus. He has dinner at Zacchaeus' house, and he says, salvation has come. And while he's still there at Zacchaeus' place, he begins to tell the parable of the kingdom, the parable of the ten minas. Because the people were thinking that the kingdom of God was going to come at that moment in Jerusalem. Luke was writing later after all these events. But he was writing at a time when Christians were beginning to despair over the fact that they didn't see Jesus returning. And they were wondering how long it would be. They were expecting him to come right away. Luke had already recorded Jesus' words warning of his coming judgment and that people were to live ready no matter how long they had to wait for his return. You remember Luke 12, Luke 12, verse 40. You also must be ready, Jesus said, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Later, Luke provided Jesus' description of that coming in answer to a Pharisee's question in Luke 17, verse 20. Once I'm being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. Wherever the king is, is the kingdom. So there is a present reality to this kingdom. If Christ lives in you, you're a part of that kingdom. The king lives in you. But there is also a future fulfillment. And in the meantime, we are to be living for the king. The kingdom of God is a present reality and a future fulfillment. And Jesus told this parable to help us to know how to live as we wait. A parable is an earthly illustration of a heavenly reality. And what Jesus was describing was about his own return to heaven. And his eventual return. And how you and I living today in the days of this kingdom. We're going to live to advance that kingdom. And so Luke said in Luke 19 verse 12. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work he said. Until I come back. Ten minus. Ten servants with a mina each. A mina was equivalent to about three months of an average working man's wages. Each servant got the same. And they were told to put this to work until the king returned. The word work is the word occupy. It's this idea. I'm giving you these kingdom resources. Now I want you to further establish my reign and my kingdom as you occupy where you are until I return. And when I return, he said, I'm going to see how much you have gained. The word for gain there is the word for how you have busied yourself with the king's business. This parable is similar to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. You remember in that parable, Jesus said, The king or the master gives to one servant five talents, one two talents, another one talent, each according to their ability. So whatever those resources are, God could entrust certain people with more resources than others, and they're each responsible to use what God has given. Not everybody has the same money. Not everyone has the same abilities. Not everyone has the same giftedness. God gives us according to our abilities. But this parable is different. Here there are ten servants, and they all get the same. We as servants of the king are all given the same Holy Spirit. We're given the same word. We're given the same gospel. And we're all given opportunities. And we are to use the word and the Holy Spirit who lives in us and the gospel to further the kingdom work of God with the opportunities he supplies to every single one of us. And we're held accountable to see what we have gained in busying ourselves with the king's business. But not everyone lives for the king and the kingdom. Some people live for themselves. Some even oppose the king. But, like Luke reminds us in Jesus' parable, our victorious king has commissioned us to advance his gospel and his kingdom while we wait for his glorious return. So how do people respond to this commission? Well, some respond in trustworthy obedience. Some respond in selfish disobedience. And some respond in outright rebellion. Some people respond to the call to advance the gospel in the kingdom with trustworthy obedience. Jesus said in verse 15, He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done. My good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your miner has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. You see, there are some callings so important that trustworthiness is not an option. It has to be there. Now, I've never jumped out of an airplane with a parachute. I don't know if it's because I'm smart or because I'm afraid, but whatever it is, I've never done it. But if I ever did it, I would want the parachute on my back to have been packed by these guys I read about in Texas. Bill Donahue and Russ Robinson, in a book called Walking the Small Group Tightrope, wrote about the Texas Army National Guard, that they have a group of special workers called riggers. Their job is to fold and pack the parachutes that soldiers use when they are jumping from an airplane at 5,000 feet. These people are intensely dedicated to their task. The riggers' creed states, I will be sure always. They know that jumpers need assurance that everything regarding their chutes is perfect. In the 20 minutes it takes to meticulously pack an MC-1-1 military parachute, 30 folds are required. A jumper has nothing to do with the chute until they put it on their backs to jump. Trust in the error-free performance of the riggers is all a jumper has to rely on. The riggers' creed further states, I will never let the idea that a piece of work is good enough make me a potential murderer through a careless mistake or oversight for I know there can be no compromise with perfection. Riggers know that the parachute business is a life or death enterprise. Mistakes cost lives. There is no room for complacency, they must prove trustworthy. Some things are so important. Not being trustworthy is not an option. What struck me is what Bill Donahue and Russ Robinson asked in their book. Do we approach our kingdom responsibilities with the same fervor? The call to be trustworthy. This is the approach, the perspective, the attitude and response that God is looking for in his kingdom servants. Jesus has called us to be trustworthy and obedient. In fact, when he commended the the, uh, servant in verse 17, he said, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The word trustworthy, it means faithful. It means reliable. It can mean obedient. Jesus was saying, I've given you all you need now. Now put this to work and prove trustworthy until I come back. Be obedient to what I'm asking you. John Stott, in Christianity Today, once wrote, Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured in terms of obedience. At least two of the king's servants went out and did as the king had asked them to. There were ten. We don't know what happened to seven of them. They are, the three that were chosen are probably representative of the seven. The first one, earns 10 times more than he started with. The second, five times more. And they're both commended. Because it isn't how much we have accomplished that matters, it's our trustworthiness that matters. That we are faithful with the gospel, we are faithful to share the word, we are faithful with the opportunities that God gives us. He's the one who gives the increase. And so, Jesus said, the king tells the servants, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities or five cities. You've been trustworthy in a very small matter. In other words, you've been given comparatively little, and you engaged in kingdom business and had a great return, so now I'm going to give you even greater responsibility here and for eternity. Just like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus establishes the principle that those who are faithful with little will be given much. People who are faithful to live and share the gospel are often given greater and more frequent opportunities to impact people with the gospel. And they will have an even greater responsibility for the kingdom in eternity. When I became a Christian, I started telling everybody about Jesus. I thought, that's what you did. In fact, I was so excited, I couldn't imagine anyone else wouldn't want to know. So I started sharing the gospel at work. Not everybody was excited about this. In fact, some of my friends abandoned me because they didn't want anything to do with me. What they really didn't want anything to do was with, with Jesus. So I began to share with clients. When I would travel on business, I would hope and pray for opportunities that I could have an opportunity to share Christ with them. I began sharing with neighbors, friends, even family members, which are the hardest to do. And I noticed that as I did that, as I took available opportunities and began to share the gospel, God would begin up opening more opportunities for me. So that when I went to a restaurant or a store, or I'm waiting in a long line or wherever I was, I realized, God, you have me here for a kingdom purpose. You've given me a mina and you want me to use it. And so I began to share it, and God began to open more and more and more doors until eventually I wound up doing what I'm doing, and I've had the chance of sharing the good news of the gospel with thousands of people. And someday, by God's grace, he may give me a little corner of the kingdom that I could serve him forever. People, if you go out to share this kingdom gift with people, And sharing the gospel we've been entrusted with. It doesn't mean that you're going to be given opportunity to speak to thousands. Not everybody gets ten cities. But you might get five. Or three. Or one. The fact of the matter is God's going to expand your opportunities. He's going to give you more places and more people you can share with. And it's going to result also in more responsibility in the kingdom of God for eternity. In fact, you may even find that you're given opportunities that were taken away from those who are not faithful with the gospel. In Luke 8, earlier, Jesus said, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Verse 17, Luke 8, 17. There is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. Nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have Even what they think they have will be taken away from them. What did Jesus say to the guy who did nothing with his mina? Take it away from him and give it to the guy who has 10. He knows what to do with these things. Increase his opportunity. People who are trustworthy with the gospel share in the victory of the gospel and the kingdom. Some respond in trustworthy obedience, but some people respond with selfish disobedience. In verse 20, Jesus said, Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I didn't put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit? so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mine away from him, give it to the one who has ten minus. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. There are consequences for disobedience. Now, I'm carefully sharing this illustration because if there's any children present, I don't want them to do this. It's extremely silly what I'm about to tell you. But I grew up in New England, and uh, my brother, my two younger brothers and I, uh, we didn't have video games and cell phones and all the electronic distractions people have today. So we had to find things to do in our rural community. And one of the things we loved to do was throw rocks, and we found out how much fun it was to throw them at each other. And so what my brothers and I would do, we'd get my two younger brothers would be on one side, I'd be on the other, and we'd build these little mounds of dirt, and we'd have a pile of rocks behind there these, you know, good chucking-sized rocks. And we'd just wait for somebody to stick their head up, and we'd try to pepper them with a rock. And we, we would do this for the longest time. It was a blast. And you got really good at ducking rocks. Every once in a while, somebody didn't get good at ducking a rock, and rocking. Yes, you'd, you'd whack them right in the head with it. Well, and anyway... Well, what would happen, inevitably they'd get a cut, or they'd be bleeding, and they'd go running home to who, Mama all the way home. <laughs> My mom who's been around the block a few times with three boys who do stuff like this. Whoever it was that came running up there, she'd say, "What were you doing?"?" "Ah, uh, what were you doing? You were throwing rocks, weren't you? You were having a rock fight, weren't you?" What did I tell you about that? Don't do it. Why did I tell you that? Well, you said somebody could get hurt. Exactly. See, this is what happens when you don't obey. So if you're going to keep doing these things, you're going to suffer the consequences. Learn a lesson. My mom was a smart lady. You know, we learned if you disobey what mom's telling you, there's consequences. Sometimes they are painful ones. You disobey what God's asked us to do, the consequences are eternal. They affect our eternity. That's what Jesus was sharing in this parable. This servant didn't oppose the king of the kingdom. He just didn't do anything to engage in the king's business. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. The phrase indicates intentionality. It wasn't a mistake that I just laid it aside. I intentionally chose not to do what you asked me to do. The reason? I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. You're austere is the word. Harsh, bitter, demanding. But the king had a different view. He said, oh, really? So you knew me to be a hard man? Well, I'm going to judge you by your own words. I'm going to judge you by your own words. In fact, in verse 22, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I didn't put in, reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? I'm going to judge you by your own words. Because the words you just gave me don't add up. In fact, they're an excuse. Because if you really thought I was a hard man, but you cared about the kingdom, then you wouldn't have done nothing. You would have at least put the money in the bank where it would have got some interest back. You'd have done something with it. But the reason you did nothing is not because you're afraid of me. You don't care about me or the kingdom. Your own words are proving you true because when I gave you a chance to serve me in the kingdom, you did nothing. So you don't care about those things. You're not afraid. You're wicked, he said. The word is bad. There's a couple New Testament words in the New Testament for wicked. One means bad in character, morally bad, corrupt. The other is a word that means bad in effect, is the word that means malignant. It's like a growing disease. It's it's destructive. Luke used the word for bad in effect, the malignancy, that people who claim to be a part of the kingdom but do nothing to serve the king or the kingdom are like a malignancy. Their, Their selfish disobedience is a curse on the kingdom. This man didn't really serve the king or have any intention to serve the kingdom. He was concerned only with his own selfish interests. So when the king gave him a chance to serve, he proved he didn't care. He did nothing. In the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, Jesus said, So take the bag of gold from him, the guy that did nothing, and give it to the guy who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more. They will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. People, you want to be careful to build all your theology out of a parable. Remember, there, a parable is an earthly story illustrating a heavenly reality. If you're going to build doctrine out of a parable, you've got to be able to support it with the rest of the word. So the thing this guy had taken away was not his salvation because the rest of the Bible teaches clearly you can't lose it. If it's real, you can't lose it. It's a judicial act of God. You're justified at God's bar of justice. You can't lose it. We'll address that a bit later. But what he's losing or what is taken away from him, he's only demonstrating through this that he never really had connection with God. Or... He was a disobedient servant who was fully a Christian, but he wasn't doing anything of the kingdom, and he was having no reward, which we'll address in a moment. So the possibilities are people who say they are servants of the king but do nothing to serve the king or the kingdom to advance the gospel or his glory, they either are not really servants of the king, and they're going to be exposed as such, or they're disobedient servants of of the king and they are not going to have any reward. So you take away what he has, and you give it to someone else who knows what to do with it. Some responded in trustworthy obedience, others in selfish disobedience, but some responded in outright rebellion. Jesus said in verse 12, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants Gave them ten minas, put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. In verse 26, he replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. As Jesus was speaking these words to the people, the reality of this story was being lived out right in front of their eyes. And they probably were most likely familiar with it, which is why he probably used it in this story. The king who leaves to get authority to come back and reign as king. You see, at this time, Herod the Great was ruling over Jerusalem, but he had just died. And his son Archelaus had either gone or was on his way to go to Rome to meet with the emperor to get permission to reign as king because even the Herods could not reign without Rome's permission. Archelaus was hated by people. He was Herod's great son, but when his father died, there was a protest that broke out, and he quelled that protest by raising up soldiers went out and killed 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem during a Passover demonstration. The Jews hated him for it. So when they found out he had gone to Rome to get authority to be king and was going to come back to reign, they didn't want anything like that to happen. So what they did, they got a delegation together of 50 very brave men. And they sent them off to Rome to protest to Caesar. We don't want this man to be our king. But the emperor sided with Archelaus. He made some adjustments so his rule wasn't so big. But he still came back to reign, and the people hated it. Jesus used that story to teach a kingdom principle. I'm the king is what he's teaching them. And I'm soon going to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. But I'm going to leave and ascend to the Father who's in heaven, the ultimate throne and authority. And one day I'm going to come back. But there are people right now who don't want me to be king over them. They protest it. They oppose it. They do everything they can to stop the spread of the gospel. To stop the rain or spread of my kingdom. But I'm coming back anyway. And I'm going to reign. These enemies of God not only oppose Christ themselves, but they do everything they can to stop the spread of the gospel and the kingdom. Jesus said, they hate me. And that word hate is significant. It means unjustified animosity meaning they hate him without reason. In other words, there's nothing in the character or actions of Jesus that justified this hatred. They found no flaw in him, no sin in him. The only reason they could hate him is out of their own jealousy, their own pride, and their own agenda. They don't want him to be king because they want to be king. They want to rule their own lives. So they hate him. That word hate is also significant because... Their hateful response is a fulfillment of the scriptures. What Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem to fulfill, we're going up to fulfill everything the prophets have written. Well, in Psalm 35 and in Psalm 69, David said in his prophecy that they're going to hate the Messiah without reason. In fact, Jesus quoted those words in John 15. In verse 18, if the world hates you, he said, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember that I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You see, you and I are called to share the gospel, not just because everybody's going to believe it. They don't. But they need to be confronted with their sin. God has purposes in our sharing the gospel. He said, if these people had never heard, they wouldn't be guilty. They're still sinners, but they're not rejecting me because they haven't even heard about me. But when you preach the gospel, people are confronted with their sin, and they see Jesus as the Savior. Then they have a choice to make. And people who choose to reject Jesus and the gospel are going to get what they wanted. Eternity without him in a Christless hell. That's why Paul said in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus said in the parable, bring these people here in front of me and kill them in front of me. People, God is life there is no life apart from God. There's only existence. If you don't have God in your life right now, you're not living, you're existing. And someday, when you die without God, you're going to exist forever in a place called hell. And there's no life there. It's only death, eternal death. People who reject Christ and the gospel are signing their own death sentence. Which is why Jesus said, bring them here and kill them in front of me. The wages of sin is death. This is what we get. This is why Jesus died, to save us from this. In Matthew's Gospel in chapter 25, Jesus said in verse 30, And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and then the king will come and say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 41, but then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. People, this is the eternal reality. This is what happens to people who reject Jesus as their king. But those of us who are called to serve him are to do it because we love him. And if you love him, you do it differently. You do it differently. It's not just duty. There's duty to it, but it's more than that. It's a joy to serve the one you love. Drew Dyke wrote a book, 2014 it came out, called Yawning at Tigers. And in the book, he was describing what happened, real life situation. Uh, was apparently played out in a television commercial I haven't seen. But he said, in a recent TV commercial, a young man is struggling with whether to go through with an arranged marriage. In his home country, arranged marriages were the norm. And apparently, in this story, this young girl, this little girl, and this little boy were pledged to each other by their families, but they never saw each other, didn't know each other, but now they've grown up. He's come to America, and now this girl's coming to fulfill the wishes of both parents. So... After living in America, it said, he was having second thoughts about adhering to this ancient custom, especially since he'd never met his wife-to-be. Still, when she flew into the airport, he dutifully waited for her, flowers in hand, and a gloomy expression on his face. But when she stepped through the terminal, everything changed. She was beautiful. Suddenly, his glum demeanor disappeared. The thought of marrying this woman was no longer a dreaded duty. It was a delight. What had changed? He had seen her. Now, besides the shallowness of this whole illustration, the point Drew Dyke is making is this. Often we serve God out of obligation. We drag ourselves to church, force ourselves to serve others, but our hearts really aren't in it. We're like the guy at the airport grudgingly holding flowers for God. We're trying to live holy lives because we know we ought to. But it's burdensome. It's not a joy. What changes this? Seeing God changes that. Seeing Jesus changes that. Knowing him. And who he is. And how much he loves you. And what he's actually done to save you. And what it really means that he's made you his child and part of his kingdom is is beyond your comprehension. And so then we serve the king and the kingdom not out of obligation, but out of love for the king. Those who come to love the king develop a passion for the kingdom and they want to see his kingdom grow. But they realize they don't make it grow. It's God who makes it grow. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul said this, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, the day of his return, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire... And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though, even though only as one escaping through the flames. No reward, being saved, escaping through the flames. Remember I said earlier, when you don't do what God's asked you to do, it means either you're not really part of his kingdom or you're living disobediently and have no reward. And people say, well, as long as I'm saved, I don't care that much about the reward. As long as I get to heaven, that's what really matters to me. So I've trusted Jesus, but I don't have much to show for it. So the reward's not a big deal for me. I'll be in heaven. Really? Do you understand today that the rewards he's talking about are not for you? I assure you in heaven, you won't have any reward greater than Jesus himself. The reward is not for you. It's for Jesus. And can you imagine? Can you imagine in that moment when you're standing before Christ himself and you're going to have that moment? I don't know what color Jesus' eyes are, but you'll know then. I don't know what his voice sounds like, but you'll know then. And the holes in his hands and his feet and the wound in his side, you're going to see those things. You're going to stand in front of him, and you're going to see the one who has loved you with a love greater than you have ever known before, and you're going to see that love in his face. You're going to hear it in his voice. And he's going to hold out those hands to you. And in that moment, you're going to want to give him everything you could possibly lay at his feet. Can you imagine in a moment like that having nothing to offer him because you haven't lived for him? You just accepted his grace and lived for yourself and now you've got nothing to offer the king. People, I don't know about you, I'm hoping to have a lifetime of rewards that I can lay at his feet. You know what? You may have nothing right now because you haven't been living for him, but it's never too late to start. That's the beauty of God's grace. Never too late to start. And if you do that, Peter said, you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's the victory of the gospel and the kingdom. That's what's waiting for us in eternity with him, sharing in this kingdom victory. Next week, Lord willing, we're gonna be hearing about how this king rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and gave us all a glimpse of the glory he was bringing through his death, burial, and resurrection. People, we are the most blessed people on earth. God, thank you for this reminder that we are a people waiting for the return of our king the kingdom is here and now it's in the hearts of those who have believed the kingdom is where the king is and jesus you live in those who have believed but there is a future to this kingdom that's glorious too a glorious kingdom that's going to be consummated on your incredible return. You've gone away, and now you're at the hands of the Father, and you're going to return in full authority, King of kings and Lord of lords. You're going to vanquish all your enemies, and your kingdom will reign. And as Zechariah said, there will be one king and one kingdom over all the earth. We look forward to that day and speed its coming and pray that in the meantime, we will be keepers of this kingdom parable, that we will understand we've been entrusted with the Holy Spirit. We've been entrusted with the Word, We've been entrusted with the gospel and the great victory of Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, you will help us to spread this word and this glory and this victory wherever you give us opportunity. That we'll be faithful with the mina you've put in our hands. So that, Lord, it may grow and multiply at your bidding for your glory. You are our reward. May our trustworthy response result in a reward that is all of yours. And we'll thank you, God, for this privilege. For those who are here today who have never trusted Christ, thank you, God, that the opportunity is always open to invite Christ to come and live in their lives, to forgive their sin, and to bring them into relationship with God. Thank you, God, if we haven't been living for you, it's never too late to start. Your mercies are fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So God, we thank you for kingdom parables like this that call us to account and give us perspective that changes the way we live and shows us that not only do we have the joy of living for you now, but the gospel and the kingdom is about a victory we'll enjoy forever. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.